through the darkness of movies past, Derek longs to see Aaron chance out between two films, Fire, Walk With Me. <laughs> okay, that was, that was pretty yeah, good. I'll see? give you that. <laughs> I, I, I try on these sometimes, on these intros. Welcome, welcome back to part two of Twin Peaks, Fire, Walk With Me. Uh, we are Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast with your boy Aaron, the monster boy, and then Derek, the little coward boy, and Meryl, the little spoopy girl. A little spoopy Yay. girl. Hey, Meryl's back again. Hey, guys. Back again. And, and wildly enough, we are recording on the 30th anniversary of Twin Peaks' original airing. So that's pretty cool. Um, obviously, that will be past by the time that y'all hear this. But. <laughs> yeah, like end of April, maybe. Yeah, fun times. Um, but I have my damn fine cup of coffee with me actually right now. So I'm en- enjoying a, uh, a late night caffeine beverage because I'm a night owl. Yeah, and I am actually having an Urban South Cafe Vietnamese style coffee stout. Yum. Did y'all see uh, Kyle McLaughlin's April Fool's joke this year? No. No. Uh-uh. He, uh, he really got everybody. He said that he was switching to decaf. Oh, uh, burn it down. <laughs> it was a really good Twitter April Fool's. Uh, All right. Cool, cool. Well, it has been a few days since we recorded the first part, but a few days in this time of COVID is like fucking years. I know. So. It's, it's felt like It's been two 25 weeks. years. <laughs> yeah. It's felt like over two weeks and what? It's only been like five days since we last recorded or something like that. Um, so that said, we have a couple of new suggestions of things you should check out yeah so cool cool um once again we have our guest from last episode on meryl so she will start if she has any suggestions uh well as i said last time i'm a seasonal horror consumer so i have nothing new that i've actually consumed horror wise (laughs) just the horrors of real life just the horrors of being in new york city during covid because let me tell you new york without the people really sucks (laughs) (laughs) This was not a city that was meant to be (laughs) enjoyed without other people. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I I, I could be just talking on my ass. I'm assuming y'all don't have it like New Orleans where like coyotes are now in downtown just wandering around. Oh my God. (laughs) No, I did not even know about that. Yeah. Yeah, in downtown New Orleans, coyotes were found in, like, parking garages and walking down the streets because everyone is inside right now. Oh, so. my God. That was quick. so funny. It's really just returning to nature. I didn't even yeah. know we had that many coyotes around because I've only seen them once or twice when I've been in New Orleans. I didn't even know that they were, like, on the outskirts of the city and that much and that many numbers. That's wild. Okay, but I do have a, a book I remembered that I read this past season that I liked. It was pretty short. I think it's, like, technically a no- Bella, maybe even, um, but it's called You Should Have Left. Have you okay. guys read this? It's uh, no. by Daniel no. Kelman. And I first read um, him a few years ago. He wrote this book called F, which was a story about these three sons kind of like grappling with their absent father, which was just interesting. And his stories are more like fables, but You Should Have Left was really reminiscent of like the House of Leaves genre of horror. Okay, cool. It's about a family that takes this like vacation in the woods and strange things start happening in the cabin and they try to leave the cabin and terror ensues. But it was a nice spooky little tale and it was also great to listen to on audiobook. 
So I really enjoyed that. I looked it up and I am saving it to add to my read list because this looks really interesting. Yeah, and it's super short. So uh, it's it's pretty fun. I really enjoyed that one. That's my, my pick. Yeah, I'll check that out as well. Cool, cool. Derek, how about you? So first off, going back a little bit to Neo 2, which I won't spend too much time. I did this time look up some of the yokai and like take the time to pull some out. One of the enemies is the Caracasa umbrella, which you might have seen in like <laughs> other stuff, which is literally like an umbrella that's possessed by a yokai with an eye in the middle and it like jumps around and it can attack you. But kind of the more horrific, like a couple examples of the more horrific yokai are Wara, or I think that's how it's pronounced. It's W-A-I ra and it's like this fucking giant slug monster with a giant demon face and two claws that almost look like praying mantis claws and it it kind of moves around like a mole basically okay and the enemy design of it in neo 2 is pretty fucking freaky the first time you encounter it it like kind of crawls out of a tunnel it's just very unexpected there's another one called yamanba which is a yokai that's in the form of an old woman that uses like a fucking knife to kill you and in legends she masquerades as a kind old lady and offers like food and lodging before killing you in your sleep. Okay, that's a lot of fairy tale stuff right there. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, there's a Mitsumi Yazuro, I think is the name of it, and it's basically a three-eyed, eight-faced yokai that's like born out of a bunch of combined beasts. Like, think the thing, like the the last form the thing takes in the movie The Thing, but a Japanese spin on that and... Pizza Bear. Yeah, and a legend has that it formed when this guy tried to appease mountain gods and it somehow it said that it raged in a fire and then it died leaving behind this giant corpse it's all kinds of craziness eight faces and three fucking eyes speaking of yokai i learned today that the game that you are hating on so hard that's getting millions of americans through this crisis <laughs> animal crossing i don't hate it it's not my cup of tea no matter how hard y'all try to convert me to it which by the way yeah like my little spoopy attic is coming along nicely but i did not really realize that Tom Nook, the main little bastard in that game that gives you insane loans, he is a Tanuki, specifically, which yeah. is like the raccoon yokai, yep. and they're yeah. the ones that have giant scrotums that yeah. they use as like parachutes and shit, so yep, he's a Tom Nook Tanuki. Yep. Yeah, I'll know those like kind of creepy forest spirits that are in Princess Mononoke. Yeah. They have the little faces and they're like little small imp looking baby things. Those things are in Neo 2 and they're actually like good yokai you actually see them at like shrines and stuff but uh yeah so there's that i pulled this guy out he's actually a boss in one of the later levels but i pulled him out just for you in mansfield his name is uh giyuki and it is a spider yokai figured that has the body of a giant spider and the head of a bull okay it's actually in legends it's connected to deep waters for some reason eyewitnesses have reported it historically at beaches and deep pools and waterfalls which is not a place that you find either of those fucking animals good job guys yeah a flying bolt is a yokai which is basically a ghost woman kind of like japanese version of woman in white where uh she is thought to be like the demonic transformation of a woman whose resentful soul like her funeral service didn't send her to the afterlife so she kind of like floats around in her white garments that she was like buried in but two of my favorite ones and it's a great like horror introduction into neo 2 and like just how much this game doesn't fuck around is the first boss you fight is called mizuki and Mizuki is a giant demon with the head of a horse and it is shown in like a bunch of old Japanese art like on scrolls and stuff as being one of the demons that's responsible for torturing souls in hell and 
and it has a brother named Gozuki, and he's also in yes. the game as another boss, and Gozuki has the head of a bull instead of the head of a horse, and it's said that when they would get tired of torturing souls in hell, they would every once in a while like leave hell and just come to our plane of existence and just cause a bunch of havoc, kind of like Killer Bob and Twin Peaks. But part of the reason, too, I wanted to bring up Mizuki specifically as the first boss is because Neo 2 low-key has a fantastic soundtrack to it, and one of the most like haunting horror action game songs that I've ever heard is the theme song of the fight with Mizuki in the first levels. Yeah, pretty intense shit. Beyond Neo 2, I went ahead and just out of curiosity, because a lot of people blew up my phone telling me that I need to check it out, I had walked away from wrestling. I had kind of gotten sick of WWE shit. WrestleMania 36 happened over this past weekend at the time of this recording. Just the clips that you sent us of them, like, trying to play that shit up to an empty arena yeah. was the most surreal, like, Tim and Eric bullshit. It really is. Seen. Like, it's like dark surrealism, but I watched it because... Vince McMahon just refused to like shut down WrestleMania no matter how much COVID was going around. Like he's just not going to admit defeat to that. So yeah, he did a pre-taped WrestleMania in an empty performance center and they played the first half on Saturday and the second half on Sunday. The best two matches of the entire weekend were the most wild. The first one was the main event on Saturday and it was a boneyard match between AJ Styles and Undertaker that was filmed out in a graveyard and they like built a set around this graveyard for the match and dear Christ is it like the most sci-fi horror part snuff film part action film because you have like Undertaker teleporting and tombstoning people <laughs> on, on the roof of a shed and shit like that and it is low key like a masterpiece like it is a demented masterpiece of just how ridiculous wrestling can get and how creative and I didn't think anything could top that like as being like match of the weekend but then on Sunday they had a Firefly Fun house match with the fiend bray wyatt and i've been praising bray wyatt's new gimmick as the fiend since like what episode five of the show real early yeah. of just being super creative super creepy and everything and it was bray wyatt versus john cena and instead of actually having a match it turned into like a psychological takedown of john cena where they were like fucking time traveling it, it reminded <laughs> me so much of like the scarecrow segment from arkham asylum <laughs> what if you are visible yeah. What if people can see you, John? Yeah, it was very much like that. And like, John, you are the demons. Surprisingly, <laughs> it was like a bad acid trip mixed with psychological horror and like abstract art house film. And it was fucking phenomenal. Like it was one of the most entertaining pieces of media I think I've ever seen. And I have completely kind of turned back around on wrestling to the point where like, I kind of want to see where this demented nature goes as we're still under COVID and they still can't have live events. So they're doing all pre-tape stuff in empty arenas <laughs> even 
if you don't like wrestling, even if you can't relate to wrestling at all, at least, I mean, I would recommend even watching the Boneyard match with Undertaker and AJ Styles, but if even that doesn't sound up your alley, if you're at all a fan of demented psychological horror, Go watch Bray Wyatt versus John Cena from WrestleMania 36. It is like nothing I've ever seen in wrestling before in my life. Fucking brilliant masterpiece. Beyond that, I just started Persona 5 Royal, uh, which is the re-release of Persona 5, but to call it re-release is underselling it. It adds a whole bunch of new content. I'm only a few hours in at the time of this, and I've already noticed a bunch of added content and changed story stuff. For those of you who don't know, Persona 5 is all about summoning mind demons from the collective unconsciousness to fight shadows, and it's all Carl Jung psychology of the shadow self and your regular self. It's like Twin Peaks, but even more friendly to Japan. Yeah, and like, it is not necessarily a horror game but there is quite a lot of horror imagery because it rips from all the mythology of every culture like demons gods everything i'm not gonna go too much persona 5 right now because i want to wait till i'm further in to gush about it more on this show and one last thing is i actually listened to a bit of nine inch nails over the past couple days since we last recorded and that song she's gone away from the return and it was written specifically for twin peaks the return back in 2017 yeah is now one of my favorite nine inch nails songs it's good shit. Yeah, play a little piece of She's Gone Away. shit super industrial love it and i will stop talking because i think i took up a lot of time with <laughs> horror stuff yeah no nah, the recent chunk of nine inch nails stuff that's come out has been really good yeah actually nine inch nails like i mean i guess they've had low periods but honestly like i've kind of dug all their shit i've been a long long time fan and this most recent chunk of stuff even though he's not necessarily throwing out complete albums anymore but the three eps that they put out like year before last were all solid the essentially three instrumental albums that they did for the watchman tv show soundtrack are fucking great that goes back to like fragile era in terms of the sound and feel but there's weird like jazzy shit in it and then just a few days ago he dropped ghosts five and six out of fucking nowhere i still need to listen to those they're free like he literally just put them up on the website for free you can go download them so yeah but yeah i was i was super intrigued when i saw the cast for the return because they leaked they didn't leak i mean i think it was an official announcement but they put out the like cast for Twin Peaks The Return and just looking down the list when you're like okay here's most of the original cast Michael Sarah 
Nine Inch Nails? Like, what the fuck? Michael Sarah's role (laughs) is the worst. Like, I did not think they could top James and being bullshit. And man, did they. They really brought that. It's it's ridiculous. But anyway, yeah, I actually have four recommendations. One movie, one TV show, one book, and one comic. So real quick to run through those. Heather and I watched the movie Satanic Panic, Chelsea Stardust's new movie. I say new movie. She actually shot it first I believe and then filmed her Hulu movie which I talked about on a recent or past episode rather but Satanic Panic's fun it's a horror comedy it's about a pizza girl who's kind of innocent naive and she goes to deliver in like a super rich mansion-y kind of area of town and stumbles across all these rich assholes trying to like summon the devil basically (laughs) that sounds great yeah so it's just this whole like why do you think rich people are so shitty how do you think they stay rich well oh yeah they just summon the devil and keep in wealth and favor i like how parasite takes it one route and then you have this film that just goes (laughs) we're gonna summon the fucking devil it was fun the main like villain i guess in the movie is rebecca romaine and she's fucking hilarious um and her husband jerry o'connell is also in it very briefly but he's fucking hilarious in it as well but it's just all these rich assholes trying to like outdo each other and they're trying to like kill this one pizza girl as a sacrifice but there's lots of gore like there were lots of gory moments that were just played up so hard that it was making us kind of laugh but yeah that was a lot of fun that is on shutter now definitely worth checking out i also checked out the first episode of shutter's new limited series called cursed movies which derek you should check it out because we have covered a couple of these movies i i've heard of the show and i am very curious to check it out yeah each episode covers one movie that supposedly has this notorious reputation as being like a cursed production so the first episode was on the exorcist they're also going to do one on poltergeist and the omen i think even twilight zone the movie yeah twilight zone the movie that's that had like a really insane workplace related accident where some people died that's one that like if you want to get down an interesting rabbit hole go look that up because that was a huge huge ordeal that changed a lot of how the industry works from a safety standpoint but yeah i watched the first episode of cursed movies where they talked about the exorcist it was fine it's not super in-depth, if I'm being honest. I mean, I'm sitting here talking shit when, like, a lot of material that we pull for our show is coming from Wikipedia, but it does just sound like they went to the Exorcist Wikipedia page and just hit the tab down to, like, curse, you know? And that's kind of all that they're really covering. Well, we're doing this for fun, and we haven't made any money off of it. Shudder is a actual streaming service. No offense, Shudder. I would really hope you consider sponsoring us. Yes. But, yeah, I get We love you, Shudder. But that show is going to be releasing an episode week um, and I think it's only going to be like maybe five or six episodes. It's not going to be a super long show, but it's an it's an interesting concept for sure. Next thing I'll mention is a novel, which I listened to the audiobook of. And this is one that I've slept on for a long time. Tons of people have recommended it. Most people are going to be like, oh, yeah, no shit. But it's Joe Hill's Heart Shaped Box which was fantastic. He's got all of the, like, skills that his father has in terms of descriptive language and really setting, like, the mood and atmosphere and history of a place and a person and characterizations. He doesn't necessarily have some of the hokiness that Stephen King has. And he's definitely got a little bit more of, like, a modern sensibility, obviously. I'm finding that, too, with his comic writing. Yeah. There's really no hokey 
spookiness to his horror um, like there is Stephen King. And not, not that, like, I like Stephen King's writing, I do, but Joe Hill, you're right, he's modernized it. There's lots of references to things, but it's never from the, like, like I said, like, hokey's the best word I can think of. It's There's never, like, a weird hokey nostalgia to the things that he's referencing. He's just referencing these things as points of context. But the characters are really solid. The, the book, to give you all an idea, is about this kind of washed up ex-rocker who basically is just kind of living his normal life in his like late 50s floating along on his money and his assistant is like yo you want to buy a ghost and he's like wait wait wait, what yeah nah I found like a haunted suit let's buy this shit it has a ghost with it and so they do and then guess what spoopy shit starts happening right but it basically ends up being like him and his 26 year old ex stripper goth girlfriend who he kind of doesn't really have a whole lot of attachment to because he's just got that rock star lifestyle like you're gonna be gone in six months who cares and it's the two of them like really deepening their bond and their relationship and unraveling this whole mystery and where all the connections and crossover are and again like I've heard about this book for years had no idea that it specifically takes place kind of throughout the south once they leave his mansion in New York and they end up in Louisiana, specifically in Slidell. This is where I went to high school. You're the Slidell girl. Yeah, yeah, this is like where your parents live. This is where my parents still live, yeah. Yeah, so like, what a weird fucking thing. Yeah, that's where, uh, that's where we got married too, in Slidell, at that movie house. Yep, that place was great. Yeah, it's like a giant props warehouse, so it's lots of stuff from the movies that have shot down in New Orleans just in a giant warehouse. It was a very, very fun wedding reception. But yeah, like, it's weird that the book specifically... Because usually it's like, oh, yeah, you know, I come from Judas Crossing, Louisiana, like some kind of fake made up <laughs> bullshit Nami. town, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> but the fact that they were like, oh, yeah, Slidell, Louisiana, I was like, the fuck? Right? That's where so I was weird. born. Like, I was born in that hospital. It's like that scene in Halloween 3 when they're, like, cutting across the nation, all these kids in the Halloween masks, and it's fucking Bad Baton Rouge. Rouge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So that was like a very weird specific, like of all towns in the country and specifically like fake made up places that you could go to the slide L. Okay. Throw a dart at a map. So yeah, the book was solid. I enjoyed it. I blasted through the audiobook because I was doing yard work and chores and everything else. Stephen Lang from fucking VFW that I mentioned last episode and Avatar and Manhunter and all kinds of shit. He is the narrator of the audiobook, which <laughs> I have enjoyed a lot of the Stephen King audiobooks I've been listening to because they get actual like actors to do the audiobooks so you listen to like Pet Cemetery and it's narrated by fucking Dexter and Michael C. Hall and you listen to something like Dr. Sleep and it's narrated by Will Patton so this one was fun because it was Stephen Lang but yeah definitely worth checking out I enjoyed it a lot last thing I'll mention and I don't know how this fucking passed me by as many times as we brought him up on the show but Cullen Bunn has a series. Cullen Bunn follows us on Twitter now. Thanks for the follow, Cullen Bunn. I hope you're listening to this. Yeah, shout out to our boy Cullen Bunn. He was on that episode of Shockwaves recently, and I happened to, like, tweet Rebecca McKendry, one of the hosts of Shockwaves. I was like, yo, this comic is completely up your alley. And that tweet is what caused him to follow us, I might add, so congratulations, Aaron. But yeah, his book, Regression, was 
fucking phenomenal. It is 15 issues. It's a limited series. It might be limited in the sense that, like, this is this one story and maybe he comes back to it later, but it was 15 issues done. It's three trades. It is fucking wild. So it's past life regression bullshit, bug cults, apocalypse, sex, gore, out the wazoo. Um, it's this guy who's having these insane visions of some kind of gross Elizabethan era guy who's like cult nasty bugs all kinds of other stuff right he just keeps seeing like bugs pouring out of people's faces and shit like that he goes to a hypnotherapist guy and does a past life regression and that like opens the fucking doors up where things start kind of crossing over for this guy and come to find out there's like a giant apocalypse bug cult that worships sex bug orgy stuff it's wild the comic book covers alone are fucking wild the artwork in it is incredible Um, The two artists that do that book are insanely talented. It is so gross in the way that it kind of captures the bugs and the gore and just the atmosphere. It does some character modeling or tracing, which is something that I know I've talked about on the show like I don't like in comic books before, but... This actually fits the book so well, and it's like flatline kind of stuff. It's not airbrushed to look like a person really, really, but like the assistant girl who's, you know, there for like one of the main characters, she's exactly, and I'm blanking on her name right now, but the actress who played Jessica Jones in the Marvel series, exactly her, right? Like there's definitely some right. characters who were modeled to look after those people, but the artwork is just phenomenal. Um, and like I said, 15 issues. It is a beginning to end kind of thing that you can can get through pretty quickly but it was really really intense i think it would make for an interesting live action adaptation if you could really get away with the level of sex and gore in it like an hbo miniseries on it uh, hbo would maybe need to like loosen their ties a little bit because like i said there's lots of character walks into room and in barn oh there's giant orgy happening but people are also covered in like maggots and roaches and stuff because they're summoning like a fucking lovecraft bug guy Nice. It's wild, but <laughs> nice. it was doesn't matter. Had fantastic. <laughs> really. I've been like writing down your suggestions as you guys have been talking, and I just slowly deleted that last one. <laughs> <laughs> <after> that description. <laughs> Nathan might like it, by the way. Maybe I'll put it back for Nathan. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's only 15 issues. I think it recently wrapped up, if I'm not mistaken. I got to go back and look at the dates on it. But yeah, great series. Yeah, it, it must have wrapped up at least within the last year or two because I had seen it on pull lists right up until a couple months ago, I want to say. so. Because yeah. I think he started like right after maybe Cold Spots. I'm not sure. That one was great. Um, and of course, Harrow County. Yeah. You and I can't sing Harrow County's praises enough. Possibly like the perfect horror comic book. Meryl, I think you would like Hero County. We have mentioned it on the show before, but I think you would definitely dig it. It's all of the like charm of Wizard of Oz kind of meets Hellboy. Okay. It's a little girl in this old school southern like oh brother where art thou style town. It's kind of like To Kill a Mockingbird if To Kill a Mockingbird had a bunch of demons. Yes. Oh sweet. It's very much yeah. this girl who like finds out she kind of has a dark past but she's very bent on like no I'm not bad. I'm gonna like be friends with the evil because the evil's not actually evil. They're just things like us that are misunderstood. It's 
it's very, very solid. The art in it is beautiful. Um, and it's also like 30 issues done. So it's it's definitely worth checking out. Nice. Awesome. One more thing. I, I keep forgetting this, but we keep talking about Animal Crossing. And I forgot to talk about the spooky equivalent, which is, for me, Luigi's Mansion that I have been playing <laughs> since this there started. Yeah. And Derek, if, I don't know. If, have you played it? I played the original Luigi's Mansion, really liked it, but I haven't played the new one yet. Okay, so I'm on Luigi's Mansion 3. And I'm just vacuuming ghosts all day long. And it has been so therapeutic. So if you're not into Animal Crossing, but you want a spooky, fun game to suck up ghosts and furniture and money, we just mentioned. <laughs> after I finish Neo 2, and I mean, I'm going to be on Persona 5 Royal for like weeks, but after I'm at least done one of those games, I uh, I might check that one out next, son. It's one that I've definitely looked at because I think you can do two-player on it. You can, and it's got really good two-player. Yeah, that that's definitely a game that I've looked at as something that Heather and I can play together. So uh, maybe I'll uh, keep an eye out for that next time it's on sale. Yeah, I yeah. just remember my favorite part of the original, and it is a great game, don't get me wrong, but my favorite part of the original was there was a button you could press to call out Mario's name because you're looking for Mario the entire time in that haunted mansion. And it's just Luigi going, Mario, 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 like over and over and over again. <laughs> and- All right, cool, cool. Well, that is another round of recommendations for everyone. Hope y'all found some good stuff to uh, keep your brains occupied. So we are, again, talking about Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me. This is going to be our like biggest, longest episode series yet. So where we left off last time, just to kind of get everybody caught up, we had discussed the first segment of the movie that follows the two new detectives. And we left off right before we actually get to the city of Twin Peaks proper. So that's kind of yeah. where we are. We gave you the big rundown, like disclaimer, etc. beforehand. Yeah, we are open with spoilers for all of Twin Peaks as we yeah. go through this. So if you somehow missed the first episode, so just FYI, like we're going full blast. Yeah. And once again, it's scary. It deals with like sexual assault, family abuse, specifically uh, has spirits, uh, has murder, rape. There's a lot of horror going on in this. Again, for you with spoilers, go go listen to our part one for a proper kind of introduction into all of it, because we are now going to go into Twin Peaks proper and right back to where we left off in the film right after we had that fucking acid trip with David Bowie meeting all the spirits (laughs) yep cool cool well before we do that do we want to do another tarot card reading real quick oh yeah derek you got your uh your deck out i got my deck and i got it shuffled (laughs) already because i had a feeling we were gonna do this again (laughs) i got i got my oh i see (laughs) (laughs) i got my deck out yes all right your your tarot deck is shuffled right um so let's split it into three decks again um, I split it up again like a triangle. So we have the left, the top, and the right. Okay. All right, awesome. So let's do a reading for Mansfield first. Mansfield, would you choose which deck you would like Derek to pull from? Uh, I'm going to do the right deck this time. Cool. Since the last reading, we didn't really have a focus for it. Let's think about in the last week-ish of everything going okay. on and what this might apply to. So once again, the Twin Peaks deck that I'm specifically using on our part one episode, I'm using the same deck. This is a, it looks like the Five of Cups, and it looks like Laura Palmer's mom at the stairs with the fan crying in a bathrobe. Oh, great. What <laughs> good, a comforting good, good. one. Yeah, five, well. Five of Cups. Oh, weirdly, this is actually a strange coincidence because my Five of Cups 
is a white horse. Okay. Holy shit. That's, yeah, that is yeah, really Yeah, because the, the white horse is what she sees in this movie and I think in the show as well. Yep. Yeah, which is a harbinger of grief and disappointment. The Five of Cups indicates a time of sorrow. A relationship, an old friend may slip away. There will be disappointment and regret when this card appears. It's important not to make any hasty decisions. It may be also helpful to look at the type of expectations that you have. Perhaps they can never do enough to please you. I don't know mm. if this is relevant to anything in particular, but it sounds like my entire experience of coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe so in general. This could be just a card for everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe in general, you know, luckily we have not lost anybody like personally, like in our direct lives yet. You're losing me with Animal Crossing. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what it's about. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't I don't know. I, I'd have to think about that one. But um, nothing, especially like in the past week, nothing really like sticks to that one. Yeah. I'm more kind of not freaked out or weird out, but just really curious about the synchronicity of your book having a white horse as the artwork specifically for this. And it's Sarah Palmer. That is incredibly weird well the fact that they chose her for this card makes sense this is like yeah like a grieving Being card with grief. yeah but yeah really interesting that this was the pale horse that they chose for this one i would think traditionally the pale horse would be for the death card or something not necessarily for this yeah this is like a definitely not a super traditional deck or illustrations so i think this is just going off her own interpretation of the cards yeah. that's still like very mathematically random so yeah but still a weird coincidence if I had a synchronicity journal, I'd be writing it down. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, this one feels like it can chalk up to everything in the world right now. So why don't we go <laughs> go with the next reading for Derek? And since you can see all of the decks, I think I'll ask Mansfield to choose for you as well which deck to pull from. Um, let's do top deck. Top deck. I got the Ten of Swords, which the artwork is of Josie uh, right after she dies and uh, her soul gets trapped in the wood. Oh my God. And her body is stabbed with 10 swords actually on the wow. bed. Wow. This okay. is also a very dramatic card. Yeah, really. So this one is Ruin Melodrama, another extremely dramatic disappointing card <laughs> two for two here <laughs> yeah where mine's gonna go i don't know when the Sun of ten of swords appears you've hit rock bottom you've let others walk all over you while you play the victim is it possible you love the drama too much to move forward without it if not for drama what would you focus on it's time to find out <laughs> derek that sounds like you are all about if you don't love me at my worst you can't have me at my best <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because over the weekend, like I know I was telling y'all last week, I had watched this movie specifically while I was kind of in the middle of a depression bout. And while we were recording, I was still kind of in the middle of it. And it really came to a head this past weekend. I'm in a much better place now, past couple days. So maybe it has something to do with that. I, uh, I had a real rough time okay. uh, over the weekend going into Monday. So I don't know if this is kind of like a late, the energy catching up if we want to go the hooky-do route or just coincidence. Yeah. But yeah. Or again, general despair for COVID. So. Just general <laughs> despair, I think, is what we're getting out of this <laughs> reading altogether. But I hear that too, that this is definitely like talking about rock bottom, like the, the slope that you were describing, like that's where it's hit. And then also it calls on like moving forward without 
drama that we were experiencing and finding out what it looks like without that weight. So it's kind of a nice like upward tick, I think. Anytime I have a depression low, like this period, the post period is always kind of like that. I'm just, all right, moving on. That was a waste of time. Yeah, it reminds me of something I was saying yesterday where I was like, I'm so bored of quarantine that I just want to start some sort of drama with somebody just to get out of the boredom of what's happening right now. But then you don't actually want that. <laughs> the yeah. boredom is better, it turns out. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, this is another descriptor for this this time. Let's go with mine now, Derek, if you wanna just pull the card from the deck we haven't used yet. Yeah, I'm gonna do the left. So we got the two of pentacles, and I think that's, um, which character is that actually? Remember the like sleazy lawyer assistant guy, Ben Horn sends to One-Eyed Jacks. Audrey ends up with him and she ties him to the ceiling and like blackmails him. Oh, oh, what's his name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do remember this now. Yeah, I'm looking at it. He's got on that robe and he's got on thigh mask and yes. she's got him like tied up. And like everything in this card is red, just like it is at One Eye Jacks. And yeah. Plus, again, the pentacles are representing One Eye Jack coins. Mr. Battis. Yes. Yes. And one of the other One Eye Jacks girls is like vacuuming next to him. I remember this. Yeah. Oh, wow. That was good detective work. Deep cut. Yeah. Two of pentacles. Interesting. We need to maybe explore how this relates to Mr. Battis. But this one is about balance and change. The two of pentacles signifies inevitable change. Since the pentacle suit relates to earthly possessions, this usually means a new job or financial situation or a move. Even if you fear this change, it needs to happen and might be fun. (laughs) Face it with the grace of a newly formed butterfly, a world of possibilities balanced upon your delicate wings. Interesting. (laughs) Another one I'm going to chalk up to COVID. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Or your new job, even. Yeah. Well, Nathan, you know, is now on unemployment, so that's a change. So maybe that'll be fun in some kind of way. (laughs) We'll see. Yeah. I do appreciate on this card art that he's balancing on one foot to signify the balance. Oh, good, good, yeah. Gotcha. Now, granted, last reading, we all had threes, which was kind of incredible. This time around, the numbers don't quite match up, but if I really want to dig, two times five is ten. So there we go. Two, five, ten. Numerology back at it. (laughs) Yeah, boom. (laughs) Yeah, we Uh, were almost three for three with the depressing cards. Yeah, really. We were all three for three of terrible shit happening. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But that was fun. Thanks for indulging another Twin Peaks tarot. This could be a spinoff podcast. I'm just saying. (laughs) I will gladly do it with you. (laughs) We can have callers. It'll be great. All right. Cool, cool. Well, fun times. We are going to hop right back into the movie. Again, we left off with the two new detectives going to investigate the murder of Teresa Banks in a shitty Nega Universe version of Twin Peaks. (laughs) And then we end with Philip Jeffries, played by David Bowie, returning to the FBI headquarters where he recalls a, like, haunting vision of a nightmarish meeting between all these spirits that are inhabiting Twin Peaks and what they could be plotting. So, Agent Cooper has gone to Deer Meadow and found the former agent's car abandoned with the words let's rock written on the windshield in lipstick so one year later back in twin peaks
so we are now kind of through montage introduced to the high school homecoming queen, Laura Palmer. And we kind of see her going about her day at school. We see her bumping into some of her friends and acquaintances. We talked about her casting last episode. So, yes. and I think Donna's as well. Yeah. So uh, Laura Palmer played by Cheryl Lee. She was briefly in David Lynch's previous movie, Wild at Heart, before she took on this role. And I'm very glad that he brought her back for this specifically because in the show obviously the entire crux is who killed her so beyond being in a couple of flashbacks and then weirdly enough in a like subplot playing her identical cousin named cousin Maddie, Maddie. Yeah. <laughs> she is basically not in the show and uh, we-, we talked about last episode too kind of how this shows a much more complex version of Lara yes. because and the show makes her out to be almost like an angelic figure whereas part of the reason why this was kind of poor received one of the reasons was Lara was shown as not necessarily the best person in the world in this Meryl you specifically had talked about two sides to her like the innocent Lara and then the kind of the darker Lara that kind of lashed out well we we knew about that because they talk about that in the show but I think the difference was we are now shown exactly the level of darkness that she was in yeah it's yeah. one thing to say it and then there's another to like, yeah. shown it and then the showing it they really fucking show it as we're about to go into yeah yeah and a lot of this is so beautifully laid out in the secret diary of Laura Palmer that I yeah. talked about last show, where she's grappling with this herself for years before we see her in Twin Peaks. Because yeah. the diary, I think, starts when she's 12. She's like really just a normal girl growing up, but she has this trauma because she's visited by Bob or she's raped by her father, one or the other, however you want to read this story. And so anything that happens with her, whereas a normal like adolescent growing up would have this natural dichotomy that they're kind of coming into of like, this is good and this is bad. Her good and bad are so far apart from each other that she can never really get those together and she can't feel like one whole person. So she's always playing to one of those sides of herself because she can't reconcile them with each other. She's either angelic or she's demonic. She's either a virgin or she's a whore. Like it's very much black or white for Laura. And she says this so many times in the diary where she's like, I see somebody else inside of me. But yeah, and again, it, it just makes sense that Laura would be this way after basically she was sexually assaulted whether it was by a spirit or a family member since she was like 12 years old so of course she's gonna act yeah yeah and yeah she like talks about that and she i think as a kid like when she's experiencing this trauma the interesting thing is she doesn't know why it's happening to her and so she naturally assumes that it's because of something that she did so there's also an aspect of guilt that plays like heavily into all this. And so she does things to sort of like karma balance this guilt out that she has. So you notice all of the good things she tries to do, right? She's got like the Meals on right. Wheels. She's the prom queen. She's the, the sweetest, most beautiful girl who everybody loves. She's tutoring Johnny, the horn's yeah. son, all, all this whole time. So she's constantly trying to balance out what she sees as like this badness inside of her that has called Bob to her, which yeah. my reading of it, and I think she comes to this in the book, is that... This was actually just a random act of violence against her and not anything that she spiritually called upon herself. But so the thing that she talks about is is actually like protecting the like innocent goodness of her inside of this bad part of her, like this harder, stronger bad Laura. And she says that nicely in the, the diary, but you can see it actually in like 
this first scene that we're talking about at the high school when she meets James underneath the gym and she's naked somehow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm not sure how. <laughs> yeah. She takes some cocaine and then she goes, makes out topless with James Hurley. <laughs> yeah. So that's the scene that we're at is she's making out with James. And I think she specifically says there, um, and maybe this is the first time in this movie that she says it. She says like, your Lara is long gone. And so she's yeah. referring to this second self that she's sort of like hidden away for later because she needs like the stronger bad self to get through whatever shit she's about to experience yeah yeah and boy howdy james hurley again is a block of wood in <laughs> this movie <laughs> and in the original series i mean i like him a lot in the return because he's older i still yes. can't fucking stand that song he sings because he oh, sings it again in the return you. yeah just you pisses and me off so much i said that i saw that live right no you saw that live i what? saw him perform it live at symphony Holy Space shit. in New York. Fucking what? Yes. Really? <laughs> it was honestly incredible. Uh, that's the advantage of living in a big city for sure. I, yeah. I mean, as much shit as I, uh, and annoying as that song is to me, I would see it live. <laughs> oh, yeah. I would go for a novelty. <laughs> that was one of the best moments of the return as well when, like, they're doing kind of that SNL-style closing to every episode at the Roadhouse where you see, oh, like, a yeah. different band, right? And I fucking love that one episode where it's just like, oh, yeah, Native Son, James Hurley, and he goes up and sings the fucking song 40 years later like anybody in that town would give a shit. Yes. I remember when that episode aired you called me that night <laughs> aired and left me a voicemail singing me the song it was oh, like a two minute long voicemail you like God. sang the whole fucking thing to me that's so uh. funny do you guys also love in this scene how they have this really long conversation about laura being a turkey and then she says gobble yes. gobble gobble yes. gobble gobble that gobble. was one of the moments where <laughs> yeah. heather was like what the fuck are we watching what are we watching like she had seen we had watched all the original show but we're watching this movie and that was the first moment where she or no take it back that was like the second moment because lil was obviously the first thing where she was just like what yeah. the fuck are we watching but yeah the second moment where she was just like like a turkey running through the corn gobble 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 it's just like what the fuck is this <laughs> and i i know like everything about twin peaks has been dissected and analyzed by everybody on the internet and we're doing it too we're just as guilty but there are certain things that i think you can just chalk up to david lynch is weird sense of humor yes. and i think this piece of dialogue is yes. one of them. yeah and that's the conversation that heather and i had as well she was just like why why is this in here what does this mean does it mean anything is it just and i was like no it's just david lynch being fucking weird mm -hmm. and quirky and like you know just being him you know who you remind me of you remind me of a turkey i gobble, think this would be a neato scene if you do the <laughs> gobble gobbles yeah gobble, gobble. anyway yeah so cheryl lee uh again playing laura palmer she's fantastic in this movie just mention a couple other things that she was in uh she was in the vonnegut adaptation of uh mother night uh with nick nolte which i like recently grabbed that off itunes out of curiosity because my wife is like super into that book she was in john carpenter's vampires lots of like mid-90s tv through 2000s tv she was in winter's bone she played the voice in bioshock 2 which we mentioned previously yep. um white bird in a blizzard and twin peaks the return obviously now where there's a fun crossover donna like we mentioned was recast so it is not laura flynn boyle playing her she kind of didn't want to come back she was also kind of tied up doing other stuff so they cast moira kelly from the cutting edge and chaplain and with honors she 
also was the voice of Nala in The Lion King? Sure. Cool. She was in West Wing. Now, where there's a fun crossover is she was on the show One Tree Hill for like 90 episodes, and Cheryl Lee had a crossover with her where she was in like nine episodes. So clearly, like, that had to have been the connection of like, yo, let's get her on there. We worked together for a while. So, yeah. and, and we, we talked about like the differences in acting. I think the consensus we got to last time was all three of us think that the casting for this movie works better for this movie. Yes. Yeah. I think for like what the movie is trying to accomplish, I think Moira Kelly is maybe a better casting decision, um, especially when you are playing her very young high school kind of naivete and innocence against Cheryl Lee, who ostensibly yeah. was like a grown woman when they filmed this. <laughs> it is pretty funny, like going back and watching the pilot of Twin Peaks and like seeing her in high school, like reacting to finding out that Lara has been killed and like having that freak out. It's just like you look like an adult woman in a classroom right yeah, now like, it's it's got that same problem that everything back then had you've got like actual 15 year olds and then this one like 32 year old playing 15. <laughs> but anyway yeah the uh the casting of Maura kelly i think works for the movie because when you're playing up the dynamic of laura is way 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 worldly deep into some shit of her own and she's playing off this like bad girl image it's very stark when you put the two of them up against each other and there are some specific scenes where that kind of comes into play. Moyer Kelly as Donna is very much the, like, innocence that... Laura once had that she desperately kind of wishes she had back because she can see Donna as what she could be potentially if you know she didn't have this trauma in her life on a regular basis but we see Laura we see her with James we also see her with Bobby who at this point in the story she is dating Bobby Briggs really we can tell she's probably just using him as a coke connection and Bobby is probably my favorite character or one of my favorite characters it's kind of hard to say favorite but one of my favorites in all of Twin Peaks granted he's kind of a bit of a shithead in this movie and kind of remains that way because it takes place before the series but he grows and he evolves he grows in very interesting ways yeah he grows so much in the series but in the return he's amazing yeah I yeah. fucking love him in the return yeah he's amazing in the return but yeah well, like we can already see the way that Laura has Bobby wrapped around her thumb just that scene where they're meeting in the school courtyard and he basically just kind of tells her like what if I'm not here later trying to upset her and she does get upset and kind of snaps at him but then immediately like you can see her face like change instantly and she starts kind of getting flirty with him and he kind of comes around immediately like the control that she has over Mm -hmm. him says a lot to like what you've heard from all these other characters talking about how charming she was and how everybody loved her and Bob like you can see she flips on that switch and she knows how to use that to like get people to like her kind of like what you were saying Meryl yeah so I wanted to talk about that specifically because that's so interesting to me that she has this um, natural like manipulation of others and she has this like charisma, but she knows how to turn this on. And throughout her relationships with people, you can see this, like she's kind of manipulative with Donna throughout the the series or like in flashbacks, we can see that she drew Donna into certain things that maybe Donna wasn't ready for or wasn't expressly excited about. And then she also has an interesting relationship with Ben Horn who yeah. kind of takes more of an interest in her than he does his own daughter, Audrey, which causes a like rift between them. And there's a part that I liked in the secret diary where she starts talking about that and she's like, it makes me feel sad for Audrey, but also it makes me feel powerful. And so there's always this like power that she's playing with, with men and with 
men especially, but like with people in general, where she's always testing out the boundaries of like, what is this power that she can use over people? To get off into like a little bit of a deep tangent, this is kind of where some of that David Lynch esoteric magic kind of comes in because the whole utilization of your personal skills and traits that way is very much that whole like left hand path right hand path kind of chaos magic where Mm -hmm. it is way more about doing things in your regular everyday life and kind of building a sense of confidence in yourself to where you believe that you can do what you want to accomplish and her specifically kind of utilizing her skills and her charm and her wit and manipulating people is very much that more evil like right hand path kind of thing which that all gets again into like the nature of the black lodge and all Mm -hmm. of this really distinct dichotomy of good and evil within the twin peaks universe and all of that like she is very much kind of already showing the signs of some of that dark side yeah in like the way that she's utilized things whereas like on the other hand cooper for instance is very much and i might be getting the like sides mixed up left hand or right hand but he's very much the good side of that coin where he is doing a lot of the same things and using a lot of the same charm and intuition and just like his skills but he's using them in a very positive way and just kind of having the two of them as these like opposing chess pieces on this Twin Peaks board is definitely interesting throughout the course of the show yeah and then real quick once again Bobby Briggs is played by Dana Ashbrook he also plays him in the return and might I add, he has aged quite well. Oh, yes, yes, he has. He is he's so still, handsome. Uh, he's a handsome boy. I think he, he probably looks better in the return. James Marshall also aged well. James Marshall looks a lot better with a bald head like yes. he does a ha- has in the return. Yeah, like... Doesn't have that, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger flat top from T2. <laughs> yeah. But they both look better uh, in the return than they do mm-hmm. in the original. But yeah, honestly, she's not even really trying to hide that she's cheating on Bobby with James and, like, also at the same time not really hiding the fact that she's still with Bobby but uh, yet again kind of like you were saying Mansfield kind of believes her own bullshit in a lack of better words that it kind of is at least sort of working out right now that she has like all these different people around her finger. Well it's also one of those things where like everybody knows except the people who don't know and the people yeah. who don't know are the people right like that's kind of yeah. thing is like James and Bobby are both just very naive and no matter how tough both of them play like in, a, in very different ways Bobby very much just playing the tough guy because he's you know the high school football captain bully but he's also like dealing fucking drugs and he murders somebody in this movie in a really Mm -hmm. weird random scene like he's kind of walking the talk a little bit when James is literally just wearing leather jackets and sunglasses (laughs) and like riding around on his motorcycle and it's a different kind of like I'm trying to be bad and cool right and Laura very much is like she calls him way beyond both of them well she's beyond both of them like she treats both of them like the little boys that they are and they act like they're both playing because she's so far beyond them from like a maturity standpoint and like the shit she's seen and done kind of standpoint that she has a pity for James certainly which she mentions kind of explicitly later in the movie but even Bobby she just sees him as a little boy is kind of the best way to like describe it Um, which she also kind of uses to her advantage with both of them but yeah like totally there's lots of people that like are aware of what's going on except for the people that 
are kind of involved, but that's how it tends to work. Yeah, and it feels like with both Bobby and James, they're these intermediary characters where we've talked about, like, they both see her the way that they want to see her, and she's with them because of the version of herself that they are projecting back to her. But it's not the bad girl version of her that either of them is really seeing and that she's getting out of those relationships. I think that might be saved more for later on when she goes to a club and everything. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting that the one person in her life who does really get a glimpse of what that looks like is Donna. Yeah. yeah. Again, we'll we'll kind of get to in a minute. The next big thing, though, is that the pages of her her secret diary yes. actually are missing. So, Laura goes to her house, and she kind of gets out the secret diary, which is a big deal in the TV show. She opens it up and discovers that there are pages that have been torn out of this diary. And she flips the fuck out, because this is kind of a big deal. The diary is a big part of the show. There's lots of information kind of jotted down on these missing pages that clues everybody into like who killed her ultimately but she takes the diary and she brings it to her friend Harold Smith who (laughs) is in the show he is an agoraphobe so he does not leave the house she has been meals on wheels bringing him food and has developed a relationship with him he's like that David Lynch goofy dark version of agoraphobe (laughs) I I know I brought up last episode but in the show that fucking scene where he tries to corner Donna and like scratches his cheek with the fucking like Yeah, and this is one of those frustratingly unnecessary scenes for the movie, but it's essential for setting up what happens in the show because he's the one that ends up with this secret diary with all this extra information and shit in it, right? And there, there's hints that she might have even also been romantically involved with him as well. They get yes. kind of, not so much romantic, but more he's trying to comfort Laura because she's freaking out about the diary. And this is actually the first instance where like she kind of is zoning out and at one point recites the words, fire walk with me and it leads to one of the first jump scares in this movie because then she kind of smiles at at Harold but her her mouth and teeth almost become like demonic like I think her mouth we changes get that it. quick flash of her like with very pale kind of whitish makeup on her lips are black her teeth are yellow yeah very like demonic looking one interesting crossover going back to literally our third or fourth episode with Lost Highway she very much looks like the mystery man in that movie huh which if you wanted to take a headcanon route same and universe, say that uh, yeah. they're they're in the same universe and the mystery man is a spirit from the Black Lodge. Yeah, or the shack in the desert. It's like another portal. Yeah. Yeah, the mystery man's another demon. Yeah, uh, you could you could totally read it that way. Lost Highway has a lot of the same feel that Twin Peaks does. Yeah. But yeah, and also too, it's just interesting because this is brought up a couple times throughout the series that as you are moving closer to the Black Lodge or being like, I guess, infected or possessed by the Black Lodge, you start literally taking on kind of the forms or like getting either physically or mentally like fucked up basically and more kind of demonic looking. I know that kind of later on starts happening to Sarah Palmer, Laura Palmer's mom, especially, but also it happens to Leland um, as the show progresses and uh, other people. I think even uh, What's-His-Face, the villain of season two, that ex-FBI agent, what I forget his name, I think there are scenes with him also starting to transform a little bit. Yeah. Just to go back to the the Harold thing, 
In the Secret Diary, she does have a sexual relationship with him, but it's in yeah. this yeah. weird way where it, it calls back to her like power dynamic, where she talks about actually having forced him into having sex with her because he can't leave his house. So it's this kind of like almost creepy thing where she's showing a lot of signs of like Bob's influence on her and her like turning that onto somebody else, which I don't think we really see in a lot of other places in this. Yeah. So I thought that that was very like creepy and interesting that she's enacting the violence that has been enacted on her on him in a way with that scene with harold of just basically throwing the diary at him showing her possessed face at him and then running off <laughs> and running he really takes for like again lack of better words a beta role in that scene yeah like, it's obvious that laura is the dominant person between the two yeah and it's interesting too that like we're seeing these moments i mean this is on one hand i feel like this scene is just unnecessary in this show because it, or in this movie it's just literally there to like connect the dot for something that happens in the tv show but it's interesting to to see like and think about the fact that this is the last moment that he sees her yeah like, this is the last interaction he has with her so the fact that like he's so bothered by her state at this moment when he's like having to recall like what happens to other people later in the show um it's kind of interesting to like see it literally but we then go to a scene where donna and laura are hanging out at uh donna's house and they're both laying on the couch backwards upside down like in a way that you do when you're a teenager but there's a line specifically as they're just kind of talking about their like personal stuff and everything else but there's one quote that I fucking love where Donna asks Laura like do you think that if you were falling in space that you would slow down after a while or go faster and faster and Laura's reply is pretty fucking haunting faster and faster and for a long time you wouldn't feel anything and then you'd burst into fire forever and the angels wouldn't help you because they've all gone away so yeah that's kind of the like bow on this entire fucking movie right there is yeah. just her descent into like this pit of despair that she's in referencing angels and angel imagery definitely comes back throughout this film yeah yeah i'm so glad you brought that up because i love that part too and then when she's talking about the angels she says the angels wouldn't help you yeah that was one of the parts that i remembered and i think you said you saw the missing pieces mansfield yes but i just liked that this part I think is where there's like a longer cut scene with Dr. Hayward and yeah. he is actually like talking about angels to her as well. He almost like gives her hope at that moment because he's like, the angel meant to help you will appear. And she's like so happy about this angel thing. And I always found like the angel motif weird in the Twin Peaks universe. Cause I was like, wait a minute. This will go with the interpretation I want to bring up with you at the end oh, of this. Oh, cool, good. Cause I'd love to hear that. But I read something about angels that like David Lynch took uh, some of his inspiration for adding the angels in from Cheryl Lee because she was sort of like exuding that and interested in bringing that motif in. So that was also kind of interesting to me that that was sort of working with her character and her as an actress actually was what brought this angel imagery and like yeah. mythology into the story. I mean, again, she looks like an angel through the original. Mm -hmm. And even in the return, she does. Like even aged, she just looks like an angel through all of Twin Peaks. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought that up. That's really cool. I didn't know about that. Yeah, I just learned about that. I thought that was really interesting. So from here, we see Laura arriving at the Double R Diner to pick up her meals on wheels order. We have a fun cameo from both Norma and Shelly. Um, this is pretty 
pretty much all that they show up in this movie. Yeah, they have much bigger roles in the TV show. Yeah. But as Laura is walking back out to her car, she sees the spirit of Miss Chalfont, this old lady that we saw in you know, fucking David Bowie's like Wild Vision, and her grandson. Now, these are both spirits that we see in the Twin Peaks show. Donna kind of takes over the Meals on Wheels route that Laura was doing in the TV show. She encounters these two spirits in the same apartment complex that, that we were just talking about Harold lives in. And this is like where we get the first reference to Garmin Bosia and creamed corn and all this weird bullshit. But Donna basically just has this wild hallucinatory moment with these two spirits. And essentially they just kind of disappear like they never lived here. They were never here. Who are you talking about? And this is kind of the same thing that we see in the first part of this movie that we discussed where the agent, Agent Desmond, shows up at the trailer park. And there's this weird trailer. And supposedly it was owned by, you know, these people called the Chalfonts. And these... These two spirits specifically go by Chalfont in the movie and then Tremond in the show. I'm not sure what you can really read into that necessarily, other than just... I do think they are the same spirits, though. They are. They're exactly the same spirits. Yeah. And this also goes back to what we discussed about how even though they're residents, I'm assuming they're residents of the Black Lodge because we see them there, yes. they're not necessarily evil. Um, they're just maybe a little more chaotic, but they seem to be in this movie especially trying to be helpful or almost like warning Laura slightly which we'll get to yeah. in just a minute but we see these two spirits which by the way the actress that plays Mrs. Chalfont she's fucking Adam Sandler's grandmother in Happy Gilmore and that's all I can ever <laughs> fucking is. see her what? as yeah she's you will go to sleep or I will put you to sleep <laughs> <laughs> she's been in so much shit over the years bless her but that's so funny anyway we see her and her grandson in the parking lot of the Double R Diner and of course they just kind of randomly appear large just happens to see them out of the corner of her eye, right? And they give her a painting that is like this really creepy, empty room with like flower wallpaper and wood floor. And it's just this empty room with a door that's wide open. And there's like a weird anxiety to that painting because you want to know what's behind that door. You want to like go through that door. You want to see what's that door. And the painting is just really disturbing in that kind of way. It's very innocuous, but it's it's just one of those things that like sets you on edge, right? By the way, the grandson is wearing like a creepy plaster mask with like a pointy nose that he's like holding over his face. It looks like the same mask that the jumping man was wearing. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, but are they similar or are they the same mask? They're similar in style, but the jumping man, that spirit literally had his face painted. This is like oh. literally like a little Play-Doh plaster mask that yeah. he is like holding over his face. Yeah. Same thing, Meryl. I thought they were almost like the same mask. Mask. They're yeah. very styled the same, yeah. Creepy as fuck. Yeah. Uh, and the little boy warns her, you know, like, hey, the man behind the mask is in your bedroom. And at that moment, Laura, like, flips the fuck out and says, like, I can't do this fucking Meals on Wheels delivery. Y'all gotta do it. And Shelly, of course, gets stuck with it, which she's, you know, not very happy about. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Laura runs home. And oh, this boy. is one of the biggest jump scares in the entire fucking movie. But it's done very methodically because, like, yes. she walks in, you see see the fan is on and by the yeah. stairs you're following the camera yeah going towards her door which her door is slightly opened as if somebody is in there already waiting we discussed the significance of the hallway
Hellboy fan in our previous episode as well. Well, and and this is very reminiscent of possibly one of the scariest jump scares in movie history from uh, Mulholland Drive, another David Lynch film um, that actually came out well after this movie, but it was very much kind of that similar setup of, you know, something scary is coming. It happens and it's still fucking terrifying. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But yeah, she walks into her room, opens the door and sees Bob. And he is trying to, like, hide behind her dresser. But obviously, you know, he's a fucking grown-ass man. He's not hiding behind a dresser, but just has that (laughs) maniacal grin on his face. And Bob is kind of the ultimate evil spirit that we see throughout the course of the Twin Peaks TV show. He has a very kind of long, unshaven face, long gray hair, denim jacket, just maniacal, huge Joker grin. He is just fucking terrifying. And just his body language and the way that he stands and walks and moves. His hands are kind of always up at his chest in a creepy way as well. But she sees this fucking ghoul in her room trying to hide behind her dresser where she keeps her diary. She sees this brief moment in like a really big heavy jump scare. Flips the fuck out and runs back outside the house. And what's scary is when she screams, Bob starts howling also. And then the camera zooms into his mouth as it's like screaming back at her. Yeah, but she runs outside of the house, like, two houses down and, like, hides in the bushes. She's kind of trying to calm herself down, but in that moment, looking back at the house, the front door opens, and who the fuck walks out? But her father, Leland So terrifying. Such a chilling moment. We know, having seen the show, ultimately, that Leland is her killer. And the one who's been abusing her all her life. Yes. And so this is the first moment where she really fully gets the impression, oh shit, Bob is my father. Bob could have been my father this entire time. What the fuck is happening? And she's really freaking the fuck out about it. So this is kind of one of the biggest reveals for her as far as what's going on. And later that evening, we have another really fucking terrifying scene where she kind of arrives back at home and they are about to have dinner. And her father, Leland, again, Leland is played by Ray Wise. He is one of those legendary, like, that guy kind of character actors. He was in fucking Robocop and Swamp Thing, Cat People. More recently, he's been in stuff like Excision and Tone Deaf. Um, He's been on a lot of Tim Eric stuff, which is fucking weird. He was in Good Night and Good Luck, Dead End, X-Men First Class. I mean, he's just like one of those dudes that you've seen in a ton of shit. He specifically plays Leland Palmer throughout the course of the show, and he is one of the most terrifying characters in this entire series, period. There's the way that we see him transform, and the way that he snaps and instantly goes into that evil Leland kind of mode. This is definitely what we see in this scene where they're eating, and just the way that he immediately has such a fucking iron-fisted hold over her because it starts off very innocent where he's like asking her about her day and then he starts kind of getting touchy-feely with her and he's holding her hand and chastising her about not washing her hands before dinner and it becomes a very like intense threatening scene and the other terrifying part about this moment 
is just how Sarah Palmer is so fucking paralyzed with fear. Just her complicitness in everything that's going on is one of the most sad and crushing things about this show is just realizing how guilty she is as well because she let this happen for years and years and years, knew what was going on, and fucking said nothing. It's such a tragedy. It feels like a Greek tragedy in this way when you think about like the plight of the mother that is paralyzed both by like drugs literally she's being drugged yeah. most of this time but also through her like weakness of spirit essentially I think we're led to yeah. like understand that she is complicit and she bears that guilt and oh my god does she wear it well in the return <laughs> yeah I was about to say and it kind of explains more in the return as to why she is this way her history is like fucking wild once you really get into the return yeah yeah and even in and especially even in like the books that came out recently like the secret history mm-hmm. of Twin Peaks her like descent into madness keeps going up and up more or down and down rather more and more throughout the regular series like she never really has a good time and she never really seems all the way with it at any point in this entire series and in the return it does a decent job of kind of explaining why she is that way because she could be uh, an avatar of Judy but we're not going to talk about Judy yeah we're not <laughs> going to talk about Judy um, when you were talking about the unclean hands part when Leland is having his little panic around her not washing her hands before dinner. That's something that is talked about a lot in The Secret Diary with Bob, that this is one of the reasons why Laura is so freaked out about Leland in that moment because he's bringing up this motif of clean and dirty which is one yeah. that is brought up often between her and Bob. So what happens in like her entire like sexual abuse by Bob is he's constantly calling her dirty. He tells her and he like reinforces this idea that she has been targeted because she's like a dirty whore. Like she's calling him to her because she's unclean. And she's sort of like trying to figure out different ways of dealing with this. Like at the very beginning of the abuse, she thinks like if she's clean and good and not bad, then he'll stop coming and that doesn't work. And then then she starts different tactics. She starts trying to numb herself instead, and that doesn't work. And then she goes into this third phase of tactics where she's trying to be the aggressor and she's trying to be bad. And like, she has really interesting lines, like I found light and pleasure in the horror and there's no fun in a game of torture if the victim is screaming for more. And so she's like constantly trying to be worse than Bob by the end of this like cycle of abuse. So that's one of the things that's I think called out here is when he's like you have you're unclean your hands are dirty she's like i know who the fuck this is yeah another thing that's really telling about this whole scene around the dinner table and it's just so gross just leland questioning her about the necklace Mm. and saying Mm -hmm. like who is this from is this from one of your lovers and just the like connotation and and sarah even says she's in high school they don't call them lovers that's just such a specific icky uncomfortable thing for like your dad to be discussing with you in that (laughs) way specifically and again like the way that Sarah just kind of corrects him but doesn't do anything to like try to stop it like is just so crushing Mm -hmm. and we kind of see the first moment of flashbacks where Leland meets Teresa Banks for kind of a midday tryst he's meeting her at this motel somewhere in town or on the outside of town 
Teresa Banks, again, is the girl who was murdered at the beginning of this movie, which kind of sets off the entire investigation. We later find out in the TV show that she is kind of one of the victims of this killer, which we know to be Leland. But we kind of see the first moment of him meeting her. And then after this dinner scene, Laura goes up to her room and she remembers the painting that she was given by Mrs. Chalfon. She left it outside. Like, she literally left it in the bushes. So she goes outside, gets it, (laughs) brings it back in. I don't blame her, though, for leaving it outside. (laughs) That, That painting really is creepy. Yeah. She hangs the painting up in her bedroom. And we also see this painting of these, like, little children sitting around a table with an angel at the table, like, there in front of them comforting them or whatever. And she kind of fixates on this painting specifically. But she hangs up the creepy painting of the empty room <laughs> and goes to sleep. Um, In a beautiful nightgown. Can we talk about her incredible silk <laughs> evening dress nightgown that she's wearing to bed as a high schooler? <laughs> like, what? Yeah, really. I thought that later in the movie where we see the moment where she's getting dressed up to go out for the night and she is straight up looking like a fucking comic book villain with that bustier and the leather and the high heels and everything but yeah like okay sure this is a high schooler yeah but this painting seems to be kind of a gateway and this is where like I'm kind of questioning what the intent of the Chalfont spirits is right this painting kind of comes to life Laura has this dream where she essentially enters the painting. Um, We see her in the room, in that room with the open door, and she goes through the door because we see the kid beckoning her to come through, right? Or no, rather, we see Miss Chalfont beckoning her to come through the door. And this painting seems to be like a portal into the Black Lodge because now we have Cooper and the man from another place there as well in her dream. This is kind of where, like, as much as this movie is a prequel to the main show, this is kind of one of those weird space-time connections between this movie as a prequel and the very end of season two where things end with Cooper. This plays into maybe the Black Lodge doesn't obey the laws of time and, and reality. It also goes back to how The Return ends, where there's kind of this weird giant time loop beginning is the end is the beginning kind of thing. Yeah. Because this is clearly Cooper after he has been stranded in the Black Lodge from the end of season two. The man from another place declares, you know, I am the arm, kind of revealing his identity that he, yeah, as Mike's (laughs) severed arm, right? Um, Mike, again, is like the good spirit equivalent to Bob. He is kind of an evil spirit who has reformed. He used to be Bob's partner when they would cause havoc on Earth. Yes, And the physical man in the real world who was possessed by this Mike spirit literally, like, cut off his own arm in order to, like, get Mike out of him. And we find out that the man from another place, played by a little person actor, is the arm, essentially. Like, he is just this manifestation of the Mike spirit. But yeah, he offers Teresa's ring. Again, the ring that was missing, the ring that they saw, like, the tan line on her hand, the ring 
ring that Agent Desmond found at the trailer park that fucking teleported him dot 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 to somewhere, right? He is offering this ring, and the ring is like this gold ring with a big green stone with the owl symbol on it. The ring is very important in the return. It's kind of not a thing in the show. He is offering this ring to Laura, kind of through this dream. And Cooper is telling her, like begging her, pleading her, like, do not take it, do not take it. Because that ring essentially is this like bond between the Black Lodge world and the real world where she essentially now has that tie and that possession kind of take over her officially if she just lets herself give into it. And we'll we'll return the ring because there's something that happens pretty much towards the end of the movie with the ring that actually kind of, I don't want to say saves her, but prevents Bob from doing something to her. So I don't understand why Cooper here is telling her not to take the ring because the ring seems to kind of negate Bob and then we see it again in the return. It kind of negates Bob and the doppelganger. So I wonder why Cooper here is telling her not to take the ring. Yeah, and Annie says it as well. Yes. At this point in the dream, Laura, like, wakes up. Another jump scare. And one of my, like, well, not favorite, but one of the most horrifying tropes to me is, like, waking up and seeing something that shouldn't be there in the bed with you. In this case, it's Annie Blackburn next to her, covered in blood, telling Laura the good Dale's trapped in the Black Lodge. Again, even though this is a prequel, all that is at at the end of season two. Yeah. So time doesn't really exist the same way for spirits in the Black Lodge. Yeah. Annie Blackburn is a character played by Heather Graham in the show, and she shows up deeper into season two. Her and Cooper kind of fall in love. And she ends up being attacked by kind of the main antagonist of the second season. And her fate is kind of unknown by the end of the show. In the follow-up novels, uh, it's brought up that like after she's rescued at the end of season two from the Black Lodge, she kind of has fucked up for life ever since then. Yeah. It's noted that like she still doesn't look like she's aged at all 30 years later or whatever. And that every time, I think it's like a specific time, like 9.38 a.m. on a specific date every year, she just utters the words, I'm fine, and then is totally catatonic all the other times. Yeah. Ooh, creepy. I forgot about yeah. that. Yeah. Because yeah. the, the show ends with Cooper being possessed by Bob, smashing his head into the mirror in his hotel. How's Annie? Over and over, how's Annie? How's Annie? How's Annie? So that's the answer. But yeah. And again, this is another one of those moments that out of context of the show, what did I just see, right? Like Heather Graham dead in bed with this girl who, what's going on, right? So this is where like the show is necessary context to, mm-hmm. you know, this movie all said and done. But Laura wakes up, you know, sees this, realizes that she has the ring in her hand. But then when she actually wakes up, the ring's gone. There's no anything, okay, right? Okay, so the ring is gone. She hasn't actually taken the ring. Yeah. When she wakes up kind of in the dream within the dream she has it in her hand but then when she wakes up in real life you know there's no ring right and it should be noted that Annie tells her that she should write that in her diary that yes. the good Cooper is in the Black Lodge and cannot leave yeah now cannot leave. I'll briefly kind of discuss some of the high points of the missing pieces at the end of our conversation but there were some elements of missing pieces that I really wish they had left in this movie Mm -hmm. because they directly tie back to the end of season two in very 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 important ways and they do not have anything to do with this movie per se but it definitely kind of resolves the giant cliffhanger that the original show ends on and would have really set things up for again the 
these like sequel movies that they had planned originally. So, you know, we can we can discuss this, but uh, to me, past this point where Laura seems to like enter the Black Lodge through the painting. This is, to me, where we really start to see, like, the influence of the Black Lodge really creeping into her. Especially since she has maybe taken the ring, dot, dot, dot. You know, we see her starting to get a lot more of that dark side kind of coming out. This specifically is where we see her, like, getting ready to go out for the night in her, like, black leather and sexy clothes, essentially. And Donna pops over wearing her, like, schoolgirl shoes and skirt and is like, hey! What are you doing? I want to go with you. I want, and she's like, no. Yeah. No Donna allowed. Yeah, Laura is very much like, nah, I'm about to do like grown up shit. You can't come with me. Yeah, it's very much that like walk hard thing where it's just like, no, Dewey, you don't want none of this. Yeah. And Donna, of course, is kind of like incensed of being like, you think I'm a innocent girl? Like, yeah. fuck you, basically. Laura goes to a Twin Peaks staple location, the Roadhouse. When she gets there, she encounters one of my favorite characters, the Log Lady, played by Katherine Coulson. Love her. Yes, absolutely. I uh, I actually have a Funko Pop of her, like, sitting on my desk over here. But yeah, she is kind of the, yes, there's the tarot card of her. She is kind of the, like, cryptic seer character throughout the show that shows up at the right moments to kind of offer information to the characters that is either a revelation about like their current state or about the plot and what clues that they should look into, right? She is this older lady, carries a log because the log apparently has the spirit of her dead husband in it. She's great. She just knows stuff. She, like you yeah. said this year, she's the three-eyed raven, I guess, of Twin Peaks. Totally. Yeah. But she has this moment where she like, like imagine when you're walking into a grocery store and like some rando person just immediately accosts you <laughs> as you're walking into the grocery and it's just like, I need to tell you all about this thing, right? And you're just like, wait, what? That's exactly what kind of moment this is. But the log lady gives her this speech of, you know, as the fire consumes the forest, the boughs of innocence, like on the outer edges are the ones consumed first, but eventually like the fire consumes all. And once the fire gets started, there's no stopping it, which, you know, again, like giant metaphor for like where her character is. Once the darkness kind of takes hold of her, there's no going back, you know, and that's definitely what this entire scene is about. Firewalk with me. Yeah. And I'd love to take an aside here. Because I love the log lady so much. And she has this one very strange part in The Secret Diary that I was just floored by because I loved it so much. So in this part where she's giving this speech about fire, she says this line, all goodness is in jeopardy, talking about what Mansfield just mentioned. But in The Secret Diary, she's talking to the log lady and she goes into the woods themselves. And the log lady is talking about what the woods represent, which I think could mean like a couple of different things. Uh, I think I probably said this last time, but because we're talking about her again, I want to just like revisit it. She says, sometimes the woods are a place to learn about things and to learn about yourself. Other times the woods are a place for other creatures to be, and it is not for us. Sometimes people go camping and learn things they shouldn't. This is italicized. Children are prey sometimes. Oh, man. Yeah. So, and that's the like crux of the, that's the crux of the whole thing. So she's talking about the woods. And at first I was thinking about these woods, like, yeah, I mean, it could be a metaphor for sex, I think, where you're like, maybe you're not ready for it. Maybe it's really great sometimes. Maybe it's not. Children are prey sometimes. There's a lot of like, 
stuff you can dig into there. But there's also this more just less abstract thing that she could be saying where it's like, no, the woods themselves are creepy and there are yeah. spirits that live in them. I'm being very literal here. The woods yeah, in Twin yeah. Peaks are weird, <laughs> you know? And I prescribe to that theory more because given what happens in the actual TV show, like even with Hawk saying like, you know, there's shit in the woods. There's the entrance to the Black Lodge in the woods. Yes. You shouldn't fuck with the spirits there. And then later on in like the secret history of Twin Peaks, when they talk about Harry Dean Stan's character, the guy from the um, trailer park, like him and a bunch of Cub Scouts got basically yes. abducted by aliens, maybe, yeah. or spirits in the woods of Twin Peaks. Yeah, it's just, I, and so I was trying to make this work in some sort of allegory way, but then I was like, no, she's probably just being very frank. Like the woods yeah. here yeah. are full of spirits and you gotta be careful because sometimes it's fine and sometimes it's well, really bad. And another interesting aspect of the secret history of Twin Peaks, there's a bit where uh, Adrian Preston is like kind of doing a follow-up of uh, like Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard and like when they were doing magical rituals together mm. and Anton LaVey, Satanism and all that. And one of them is talking about how they built this altar using wood imported from a town called Twin Peaks and at oh. one point whoever's talking about it is like touching the wood and is whispering under his breath fire walk with me as he's touching the wood and so it's like yeah like the woods are just around Twin Peaks are fucking magical and full of evil spirits don't fuck with them basically yeah yeah and so it feels like when she's back in this scene and telling Laura like hey remember what I told you like two years ago about these woods remember it's you weird. didn't listen. Did you? <laughs> you didn't listen. <laughs> well, and also too, it's it's revealed later on in the series that Leland first encountered Bob, kind of in the same way that of what Bob's trying to do to Laura. Kind of someone else was maybe possessed by Bob and started abusing Leland as a little kid by a lake in the woods, yeah, and uh, eventually like took over Leland that way, um, which is kind of what Bob is trying to accomplish here in this movie. I forgot about that, Derek. Was that in the Secret History? That's in the show. That's in the show but they also talk about it in more detail with the secret history of there was an actual person that no one else really like knew about but Leland like a quote unquote imaginary friend it was heavily suggested that he was sexually abusing Leland and then Bob was the one doing it and entered Leland and Leland carried him for so many years but yeah so she leaves the log lady goes inside the bar I don't like any of these other characters I don't think we necessarily have to go into detail with them yeah we don't have to talk about the characters but I think this scene is interesting and it's one of the scenes with like the most tension in the movie yeah all the guys that kind of are costing Lara but like she's also feeding into this they show up in the TV show but they're all involved with the drug trade of Twin Peaks in Canada they're basically the criminals of Twin Peaks in a nutshell Lara is here at this bar supporting her coke habit by prostituting herself to like random clients and the bar owner Jacques Renault who is a character who shows up in the show pretty heavily played by Walter Okowitz. He is her middleman connect, not quite pimp necessarily, but he's the one that's making the connections for her. So, you know, she goes in, she sits at her own table, he gets her a drink, but he basically points her to like the two clients that are there for her that night. The Renaults and the Roadhouse are basically like the den of scum and villainy of Twin Peaks, basically. Yeah. Throughout all of it, even in the return, it's like the den of scum and villainy. But yeah, just as she's kind of introduced to these two Johns for the evening. She discovers that Donna has tagged along anyway.
anyway, despite her being like, yeah, no, you don't need none of this grown-up shit. And this is kind of in the, like, roadhouse proper. But eventually, they kind of are all like, mm, yeah, fuck it, like, whatever. Let's go hang out. Laura kind of just gives Donna this ultimatum of like, all right, you're here, you want to tag along, like, get ready, little kitty. But they go into, like, this back room of the roadhouse, which we have not seen in the show. Isn't it called The Power and the Glory? Is the yes. name yeah. Um, yeah. What a cool name, but also yeah, really cryptic. Really cool. <laughs> yes. This scene, I think, is one of the most tension-filled in the movie. The music is amazing, by the way. I mentioned last episode how good the fucking soundtrack oh, is for this movie. Yeah, this track especially. I feel like the soundtrack for this movie is better than the show, because it has the two or three main themes from the show, but some really fucking good stuff that was just for this movie. So this is a track called The Pink Room from this scene. So yeah, like super cool, groovy, like, baby. rocky, yeah. groovy, sexy kind of song, right? And the atmosphere of this fucking room in this bar, lots of pink giant flood kind of neon. But definitely like a forbidden club. Yes, you're in like a back room that you shouldn't be in kind of thing. There are strobe lights popping, which that is certainly a thing in David Lynch movies, like that whole connection to like electricity. And the music is so fucking loud and overwhelming that the entire scene is subtitled, which is fucking genius because all these people are kind of yelling at each other. But it, it's super realistic. This yeah. feels like I'm at a concert. Like, cause I mean, think of how many concerts, especially you and I, Aaron, but I know, Meryl, you've been to a couple with us too. You gotta Just yell. like how yeah. muffled it is and how you have to yell. And this sounds exactly like that element. But yeah, it's really cool that Dave Lynch decided to do that where he, he was like, no, we're not gonna like mic up these actors. It's going to sound like you are there with them in yeah. this loud as fuck room. But in this whole scene, they're all kind of standing around... Uh, a couple of them are already fucked up and they're just talking nonsense but we see this scene where they kind of like round robin start passing their beers around and like haha funny like we're all gonna pass these beers to the left and drink but one of the guys definitely like drugs one of the beers and passes it back in the opposite direction and Donna ends up with that beer and I think Laura like watches her do it totally Laura Laura exactly knows what's happening yes this whole scene like this is one of those things that like I think everybody can relate to in some way shape or form One of those moments in your life where you either see for the first time, really truly either see a friend that you thought you knew really well, or maybe even like a sibling, and you see them like 
in a context like this where like you're kind of shocked and you feel like you knew them so well and you feel like you were so close to them and then you kind of have this realization of like holy shit there's a whole different side to this person this completely changes my entire perception of who this person is and what my relationship is to them and who I am like recontextualize like who I thought I was based on that relationship like that whole idea is already really uncomfortable and shocking and that's definitely like what Donna's going through right now um, and she's trying her best to like play along and keep up essentially because she wants to prove that she's not chicken shit I guess so Laura now bumps into one of her friends Ronette Pulaski which this is a character from the show who's kind of like the girl that got away and so the entire first chunk of the show kind of revolves around like her being in a coma and whether or not she's going to wake up during the secret history book and everything agent Preston following up with her like I think she's one of the few characters that actually legit got away and like had a decent life at the end of uh, everything so good for her yeah good for her a lot of horrible shit happens to her too so yeah Laura and Ronette are discussing their friend Teresa who was murdered the year before well is this the first hint that Teresa Banks knew Laura yes so as they're discussing Teresa Jacques comes over and butts into their conversation and he kind of reveals the bit that Teresa was blackmailing whoever she was seeing right which at this point Laura does not know that the person she was seeing was her dad and there's just kind of this like round robin bit where Jacques says like yeah Teresa called me to ask what your father's looked like and that's kind of the moment where Laura's just like oh oh shit uh she's kind of putting that two and two together just a little bit I didn't connect the dots the first time I watched Firewalk with me but this time around I was like Oh, yeah. okay. And there are some scenes from the missing pieces that also like more explicitly underline that. Like it literally shows some of that. And I wish that stuff had been maybe left in. But anyway, Laura begins seductively dancing with one of the two guys and she takes off her jacket, throws it on the ground and she just starts getting straight naked, like takes her top off, is dancing with this guy. And Donna notices that and is again, kind of shocked. But as Donna kind of also starts dancing with her guy, she also gets topless. But it's kind of in one of these moments where like Laura is really into like what's going on with her. And then she looks over and sees Donna in this state and she flips out at that point. Donna seems to be doing it almost like I want to be cool like Laura or even maybe wanting up. But she's also drugged too. And that's kind of the moment where Laura like flips the fuck out and realizes like what she's kind of done to Donna and like how she's kind of allowed and in a lot of ways exacerbated Donna like getting this deep into like all the shit that she's involved with so this is the moment where she like kind of freaks out and grabs all their clothes and basically forces Jacques to like bring them home. And she says this thing to Donna where she's like, don't take my things. Cause Donna was wearing her jacket that she took off, yeah. which comes back in the show. And when I say comes back, I mean, I guess it was started in the show. Um, it always reminds me of the scene where Donna has taken Laura's sunglasses. And this happens, yeah. I want to say in season, is this season one where she has the sunglasses? <laughs> she also takes James. She takes James. True. <laughs> so that's another thing she took. But I love when she takes the sunglasses and that's the first time we see her smoking. 
And so there's yeah. this weird transference. I feel like Laura knows that she's got such powerful energy that even in her things that she's owned, she's like, don't take them. And it's not like I'm mad at you for taking them. It's a warning. I don't want you to catch the crazy or this evil or whatever this energy is that I have because yeah. if you're even like touching the things that I own, it will come to you. And that we saw that in season one when, when Donna starts becoming more of a bad girl, I think. Yeah. It's kind of like warning her, don't take my stuff, is almost a little bit of an act now for her because she just kind of like showed that there's still glimmers of goodness in her, freaking out and like stopping what was happening in Donna and then mm-hmm. like immediately like being like, this is done, we're going home. But then plays it off like trying to still be like cool and like I'm bad to the bone, don't take my well, shit. That's, that's how it is the next morning, especially because Donna being drugged, like she doesn't really remember anything the next morning or like how they got home or what happened. She just knows they got in a fight and Laura doesn't tell her what happened. Clearly, she doesn't tell her what actually happened, but she just says, we got in a fight because you took my jacket and you wore my jacket. Don't take my things, right? Which we know that don't take my things is also on a metaphorical deeper level. Like we were saying, like, don't do me. Don't be me. Don't do what I'm doing, right? So this next morning, again, they they wake up at Donna's house. That's kind of the one safe place that Laura has. So they go there and they wake up the next morning. And of course, they're both like kind of fucked up still and hungover. But Leland just shows up at their house. Again, Laura's dad. And he's just like, oh, yeah, uh, I'm here to pick you up. Does he just walk the he fuck in? in. Yeah. It's not his house. I guess it's <laughs> small town people knowing guess, each yeah. other's people and people each other's kids i you know i don't know whatever but yeah leland just walks into this house and it's just like oh yeah hey uh i'm here to pick you up to go get your mom we're gonna go eat breakfast okay so laura and leland are now driving in leland's convertible another real intense scene about to show up yeah and there is definitely like tension between them already because this is at the point where again laura like knows or at least she has a very good hunch that he might be Bob actually um that's not been like a thousand percent confirmed for her yet but she knows what she saw when he walked out of the house as they pull up to a stoplight where there's comically like five cars a dump truck and then like an old man being helped across the road (laughs) they are being tailgated by this fucking camper truck and the thing is like driving erratically and zooming around and everything else but when they get to the stop this vehicle like whips around them goes through the intersection the other way and pulls up alongside of them and it's Philip Gerard the one-armed man that we see from the show he was the one that again was possessed by Mike this demon that was slightly like went from evil to good he claims he see he saw the face of God and it caused him to repent yeah it's kind of like the opposite side of the coin to Bob he is trying to warn Laura about her father and Bob but it's just this fucking insane surreal David Lynch moment where everybody is screaming at each other. <laughs> the, the motor is like the motor revving off. and horns blaring and dogs barking and just all this fucking noise with all these people yelling. But also like weird noises in the background too, like Black yeah. Lodge spirit noises. Exactly, right? And he's just yelling out the side of the car like, you know, it's your father. It's been him this whole time. Something like that. Like We don't know what he's 
says. Like, you can pick out pieces of what he's saying. Well, the one thing that you are able to hear him shout specifically at Leland is that the thread will be torn as he's, like, showing Lara Teresa's ring again, the ring. Yeah, he's wearing the ring. Like, in real life, he's the one with the ring, and he's, like, holding it up to show her. Yeah, yeah I wrote this down when I was watching it when my, like, haze <laughs> the last time I watched it, and this is what I wrote down, so... <laughs> Take this with a grain of salt. But I have, the thread will be torn. It's him. It's your fault. You stole a car like the Formica table. The Formica table, yeah, okay. Hmm. So I don't know. The Formica table comes back and he stole a car. You stole a car? So also, maybe I need to rewatch it, but I think that's what it said. Okay. I don't understand the thread will be torn. I don't understand the stole a car. I don't understand the Formica table, but I think he's mostly talking to Bob here. Laura's almost incidental at this point. Could be. He's giving her info, but he's sort of more like, Bob, what are you doing? Give me back my shit. Yeah, I think he's accosting Bob. In fact, I think he might even mention a Garmin Bazoa or whatever the fuck it's yeah. called. Yeah, yeah. He might. And maybe yeah. that's what he said, like, you stole that instead of a car. <laughs> Maybe, oh, well, I'm I'll just guessing. Like you, you Hey, knowing David Lynch, it could be like he stole a car and be like, what the yeah. fuck does that mean? <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I think he's kind of shouting at them both. Like, I think when he's directing it towards Leland, he's actually directing it towards Bob because he knows Bob is in Leland. He's then trying to warn Lara by being like, it's your father. Here's the ring. Yeah. But in this moment, Leland is just blasting his fucking engine while he's in park and the car starts smoking. So once they like break away from this insane interaction Leland pulls over into a auto garage just like drives right up into it and all these guys are kind of standing around like what the fuck is this dude doing because they're watching the whole scene from the corner but this is kind of the moment where like Laura's flipping the fuck out like who is that man what was going on how do you know him what was he saying and Leland kind of zones the fuck out and this is where we see kind of the full flashback to his affair with Teresa. We had seen them previously like meeting at this motel either in Twin Peaks or at the outskirts of Twin Peaks or somewhere. There is essentially the connection between Deer Meadow and Twin Peaks in that they can't be that far away because Teresa lived in that trailer park in Deer Meadow and we also go back to the trailer park in the return and it seems like it's on the outskirts of Twin Peaks so they're very close to each other. Yeah, it's like the Metairie to New Orleans or yeah, something. Yeah, but we know that again Teresa, Ronette, and Laura all kind of hung in the same circles, right? Leland, after a couple of trysts, is essentially asking Teresa to, like, set up a foursome with some of your friends, right? Like, some of your girlfriends, get them over. But then when we see him show up at the motel, he's kind of walking around the corner to the room and just barely sees through the open door of the motel room. He sees Ronette and Laura on the bed in lingerie. And that's when he, like, flips the fuck out and is like, oh, Oh shit, oh shit. And he kind of turns around to leave and bumps into Teresa and is just like, yeah, uh, yeah, no, something came up. I got a ditch. Bye. Here's money anyway. And she kind of puts that two and two together of, hmm, okay. And I'll, I'll go ahead and mention it right now. In the missing pieces, this scene goes on a tiny bit longer where we basically see like Leland finding the Teresa Banks ad in the Flesh World magazine, setting up their hotel rendezvous. But then after he like sees Laura and Ronette through the doorway of the hotel, Teresa kind of figures out that again, Leela is one of their dads. And we see her go around the corner to this phone booth, calls Jacques. 
And she just says, what do their fathers look like? And Jacques basically describes Leland to a T. And then she calls Leland and basically says like, hey, so I know who you are now. Uh, I know everything. Like, I know your daughter. Like, that's fucked up. And she attempts to blackmail him. So it kind of underscores all of that whole subplot a little bit more because that comes up in the TV show too, that Leland was basically being blackmailed and all this other bullshit. So we see him kind of recall all of this while they're parked at this auto garage. Something else you forgot to mention in the flashback as he like is freaking out and he like tells Therese, I'm done. No, I I can't do this right now. And is walking away. The fucking jumping kid spirit comes out of the bushes wearing the mask you hear this weird underscore it's almost like a jump scare the soundtrack has that fucking weird noises from the black lodge spirit stuff start randomly playing as this kid is just jumping around leland is this the tremont grandson yes yeah the jumping man is different yes the jumping man's wearing like a red suit yeah but it's very similar though because like those two again like the mask looks very similar to the jumping man's mask and the kid is jumping a lot kind of like the jumping man so Mm -hmm. maybe there is some kind of tie between those two spirits but yeah, like the kid's just jumping around and Leland's like, what the fuck? And like walks faster away. Yeah. And like, again, that scene is one of the scarier, to me, one of the scarier moments of the movie of just randomly this fucking kid wearing a creepy as shit mask with a long nose just jumping around as weird yep. noises are playing. Um, I want to correct myself. I looked up the script. <laughs> he did <laughs> okay. not steal a car. He stole corn, which makes so much more sense. Corn. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. Carmen yeah. so Boza, is, yeah. Which, I mean, we know that the movie deviated from the script, so this is also not gospel, but... But that definitively means that he was talking to Bob. Yeah. That's who he was talking to, yeah. Yeah, but he also shouts to Laura. So he says, you stole the corn, I had it canned above the store. Then to Laura, miss the look on her face when it was opened. There was a closeness, like the Formica table top. Now back to Leland. The thread will be torn, Mr. Palmer. The thread will be torn. Then back to Laura. It's him. It's your father. That is the actual script. It is slightly deviated from what I wrote down, but it makes more sense in as much as anything can make sense in this script. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, so uh, that happens at the gas station. I like how Leland, he's been just parked here in the gas station. His daughter is hysterical. (laughs) And the people are like, do you need help? And he's like, fuck off, do your job. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) After he's been like spaced out staring into the like middle nothing for who knows how long. Yeah. But like, again, they're probably crazy people. Like this reminded me of one time when I was at a gas station in New Orleans. I think I'd just come off a shift and the picky like 730 in the morning. I've been sleep deprived for 14 hours. And I was just gassing up my car and there was a car in front of me at the pump. So I drove my car up and took the second pump and there was a car behind mine. And I stopped at the second pump. And as I stopped the second pump getting out of my car, the car that was in front of me at the first pump, I didn't notice that the person that was finishing up because I was sleep deprived. They were already in their car and they drove off. And the car that drove around to another pump was just this random lady who was hysterical, got out of her car, immediately looked at me and just started screaming like, yeah, I saw what you did did you dumbass you took the second pump you could have pulled up and i just kind of looked at her i was like did you not see there was a car already there waiting 
And I kind of like pointed at the car. I didn't even say a word to her. I just pointed at the car driving off. She's just like, you could have waited another goddamn 10 seconds. Yeah, you <laughs> fucked me over. And I'm like, it's literally a cast pump. We're 730 in the morning. So like I just ignored her as she was continually like screaming random shit and gassed up my car. I stopped at about 10, 15 bucks knowing I could get back home just fine <laughs> on that. And I would go to a different gas station. Instead of being freaked out by the end of it, I was a little pissed. So I waved yeah. to her and I, and I like did a sleep like, have a nice day. And she started screaming and I just drove off. But yeah, it was kind of like something like that. It was just like this random fucking wacko spaces out and then snaps at you. Yeah, did y'all see that thing on Twitter where people like got a transparent sticker directed by David Lynch and just put it on a window? And they're just like, everything makes more sense now. (laughs) That's what that reminds me of. It's like, yeah, if you just imagine that David Lynch directed this, everything feels a little bit more manageable. (laughs) Yeah, really. Shit, that's still on my Facebook profile picture of directed by David Lynch. Oh, that's funny. So yeah, after yet another acid trip zone out by Leland, while we are covering Fire Walk with me, we are realizing that we're kind of just doing our own brief history of Twin Peaks, and we have decided that we are enjoying doing this really big deep dive with every single scene, and the only way we're going to be able to keep doing that and finish this movie properly without rushing the end, which honestly the last chunk of the movie is really fucking important, we have decided that we're going to actually make this a three-part series. Yep. So Yeah, fuck it. If we're going to like do more than one, let's go big. Yeah, and we're going to return with Meryl for I'll part three. And we are going to finally get to the murder of Laura Palmer, get a little bit more into the missing pieces and other lore of Twin Peaks, and maybe even discuss some of our own interpretations of the end or certain scenes. So before we close this episode out, did y'all have any last minute points you wanted to make of the stuff that we covered today? The only thing is a question, really. And I thought of it while we were talking about the Chalfont Tremond lady. We've talked about her being like a helper and maybe not a helper, but I wonder now that we've been talking about it if her ulterior motive is not really to do with Lara at all but to get more Garmin Boja somehow and she's just like procuring it. Or to fuck over Bob. Or to fuck, or to over, fuck Bob. over Bob. Yeah it's so interesting. I haven't really questioned her motives a lot throughout this but now I'm, I'm interested in thinking about it. The more we discuss through this and the points that you're bringing up especially the more we're discussing through this the more I'm revisiting these things. I'm now leaning more towards that all the spirits of the Black Lodge are kind of chaotic in nature and maybe selfish totally. and, yeah. and that like their selfishness can either align with your goals or be against you like but I think Bob is the worst of them all Mm -hmm. I think if anyone is quote unquote the best of them she is probably among them of the Black Lodge as well as Mike and the man from another place but even they uh, Mm -hmm. especially here in this movie are kind of being selfish like no we want our cut of the corn of suffering basically yeah (laughs) and again this will be in part three when we discuss this but I think really the only spirit that kind of really reaches that point of like oh we are doing really fucked up shit is Mike given of like what happens in the last scenes of this movie yeah. and what happens in the rest of the series like yeah. I think Mike is the only Black Lodge spirit that really does like go good in a way but sure. he does yeah. definitely have his moments of like yeah. I want my cut but yeah so I, I know I promised I would have uh, an interpretation based off of the dichotomy you've been bringing up Meryl but we're gonna have to save that for part three <laughs> so Perfect. you'll have to wait till part three for that but yeah anything else? No just I love doing this with y'all I'm learning so much about uh, this show as we're going through it. This is really fun. Thanks for having me. We are glad to have you because you brought up a couple things that I 
fucking didn't look at or see in a certain way. So yeah. And so with that, we are Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by myself, the coward, Derek, and my monster movie, my movie monster, monster boy co-host, Aaron. I fucked that up. We discuss fears, phobias, and just how scary these movies are in regard to that. Um, you can find us at wherever you find your podcasts, Apple, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to just stop listing all that because you can find all that stuff on our Podbean website, on our Twitter. Um, we are at Watch If You Dare on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks once again to your little brother, Jesse Mansfield, for our introduction and outro music. Check out all his stuff, Party Gator, Bandcamp, good shit. Uh, anything else, Aaron? Only what I mentioned last episode, just he is also kind of on furlough along with everybody else and he's not being paid. So if y'all have a couple bucks to spare, get some music, throw him a couple bucks and definitely support any kind of gig economy people that you have in your life right now as much as you can. So times is tough. Yeah. So with that, we will see you in part three to finally wrap up Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me. Just remember that Sally you like will come back into style in five three days however long until we record again. <laughs> <laughs>